There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, how the fight for voting rights makes everything else possible, with Beto O'Rourke and his new book, We've Got to Try. Beto O'Rourke is a fourth generation Texan, born and raised in El Paso, where he has served as a small business owner, a city council representative and a member of Congress. He also, in 2020, had a short presidential campaign. But today we're here to talk about Beto's book, which is We've Got to Try, How the Fight for Voting Rights Makes Everything Else Possible. Beto, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me on. The book starts with a description of something that became known as the 1886 Texas election outrage. Tell us what that is. In Washington County, which is in the southeast part of the state, not too far from Houston, Texas, you had this extraordinary emergence of Black political power following the end of the Civil War and throughout Reconstruction. But that Black political power was too much for many of the white citizens of Washington County to bear. And so they organized into a white nationalist terrorist gang and effectively and not euphemistically, stole the election in 1886, literally went and stole ballot boxes at the, you know, at gunpoint. Massed figures would storm into different precincts as the ballots were being counted to interrupt the process. And in one of those precincts, uh, one of the, the gunmen who'd come to steal the ballots was shot dead in his tracks. And that prompted of course, the arrest of the poll workers there, all of whom were African-American. Three of them were later kidnapped from their jail cell and lynched. They were hanged not too far away in Washington County. Those three happened to have incriminating evidence on the ringleader of this terrorist plot to steal the election. And the end result of all this, Neil, is that the perpetrators of the plot were never brought to justice. In fact, they were found not guilty. It cemented the rule of white nationalists in Texas for the next 75 years, despite an attempt in Congress to intervene with voting rights legislation in 1890. And so the book starts there as a way of explaining not only what happened at the end of Reconstruction in the U.S., but to a degree what is happening right now in the United States of America. 
and so I think it's I think it's quite important for us to say at this point, where did you and you know, you're a Ivy League educated man, where did you first hear of this incident? You know, I didn't know much about this, which is crazy because I'm a lifelong Texas resident. I'm pretty politically involved. I love history. And I knew nothing about the election outrage of Washington County in 1886. In fact, when I was doing voting rights work in 2021 and voter registration work across the state of Texas, I met a young woman named Taylor Coleman, who was the descendant of one of those three lynched poll workers from Washington County, a guy named Shad Felder. And as we were talking about the need to restore voting rights in the 21st century in Texas, a state where it is harder to vote and harder to register to vote than any other state in the union. She talked about this history and this cautionary tale of what happens when we don't fight back and when we don't hold those who attack our democracy accountable. What happened after that outrage and the failure of the voting rights bill in 1890 was 75 years of Jim Crow of something far less than a democracy that only ended with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was signed into law by the first president from the state of Texas, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And what this young woman, this volunteer who was helping us to register voters in Texas, essentially said to me, if we don't meet these authoritarian fascist challenges in America, and they certainly apply in other Western democracies that are under attack right now, we might very well descend into another 75 years or more of this political darkness, this loss of democracy here in America and in many other parts of the world. And so that conversation really was the impetus for researching and writing this book about understanding where we are right now in America following January 6, 2021 when the peaceful transfer of power was attacked by armed thugs who were inspired by the outgoing president, Donald Trump, to steal power from the incoming president, Joe Biden. And though the immediate threat was thwarted on that day, try to make the case that the attempt to usurp this democracy and in the place of free and fair elections, have the rule of strong men and and strong women is alive and well across the country and nowhere more so than in the state of Texas. So this book, I hope, helps us to understand that what is happening right now in America is nothing new. It is not an aberration. In fact, it is a deeply seated part of who we are. And it reveals this tension between democracy and full political participation by all of us, regardless of race, creed, or color, And this impulse to restrict the franchise, the right to vote to only certain members of our communities, only certain races within the country. And that contest is happening right now in real time. And we've got to meet it head on. We cannot be found wanting. And this time, unlike in 1890, we've got to win. We've got to win right away because the slip of the Donald Trump presidency and the January 6th insurrection could turn into a slide that could take us to someplace from which we might not be able to recover. So what sort of impediments, going up to the the Lyndon Johnson Voting Rights Act, what sort of impediments were there to voting? So how did one go about stopping 
people and i say people but i mean realistically we're talking you know we're talking about black and mexican american people here how did they go about stopping people voting much of the story centers on a gentleman named lawrence nixon who moved to my hometown of el paso in 1910 he's a black physician born in the northeast part of the state a bastion of the former confederacy he's born to a family his father was enslaved at birth. So this is a very current, recent issue for those in that part of Texas. He moves to El Paso, which is the westernmost part of the state, because that's about as far away as he can get from that past and still be in Texas. And El Paso, which borders Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, is at the time this thriving binational community. You can walk across the border into Mexico. There's no segregation. There's no Jim Crow. And in the city of El Paso, though he's Black, he's able to vote, participate in elections. He's a civic leader. Well, in 1923, the state legislature in Texas outlaws voting by African Americans in the state. And unlike much of the rest of the former Confederacy, they don't do it euphemistically. They don't ask you to guess the number of jelly beans in a jar in order to register, which happens in other states. They don't ask you to pass a literacy test or recite the state constitution. Literally in black and white in state statute, it says that if you're black, you cannot vote. Nonetheless, in that year, 1924, following the passage of the all-white primary law, Lawrence Nixon pays his poll tax, which is a requirement at the time to vote, waits in line at his typical polling location, presents the poll tax receipt when he gets to the head of the line, and the election judge and poll worker who recognize him on site because Nixon's never missed an election before, say, Dr. Nixon, you know we can't let you vote. And Nixon replies, I know you can't, but I've got to try. And this guy, Lawrence Nixon, fights the white primary law in Texas for more than 20 years, taking his case all the way to the United States Supreme Court and winning not one, but two signal victories there until by 1944, he and others have helped to integrate elections in the state of Texas. But as you and your listeners probably know, it will be another 20 years until the 1964 Civil Rights Act and then the 1965 Voting Rights Act that you truly have a multiracial democracy in America. So for 75 years and, and those 20 years explicitly in Texas with the white primary, there was every manner of political intimidation against African-Americans in the U.S., specifically in the South and in the states of the former Confederacy, but nowhere more explicit than in the state of Texas. And I think it's no accident that it was a Texan, Lawrence Nixon, who ultimately defeated that and inspired another Texan, Lyndon Baines Johnson, to use the political capital he had at the beginning of his presidency to pass that Civil Rights Act and that Voting Rights Act, which really transformed America in a way second only to perhaps the end of the Civil War 100 years earlier. And then in 1965 happens the Voting Rights Act. And um, you know, no doubt after that, there was some form of, of gerrymandering and attempts to restrict voting going on, as there always is. But as you mentioned, you know, you have this America is this um, you know, multiracial democracy. And then in 2013, there is a, a Supreme Court judgment, Shelby versus Holder decision. Um, so what was that and what was the implications of that? In 2013, a majority of the Supreme Court 
essentially felt that these protections for the right to vote, and specifically protections for minority voters against the majority withdrawing the franchise from them, were no longer needed. In other words, they almost declared in in that decision, Shelby versus Holder in 2013, we're we're kind of in a post-racial America. We've won. There's no need for these protections. We have uh, an African-American president in the White House. We have greater levels of representation in Congress and the Senate. We no longer need these protections. Well, of course, they could not have been more wrong. Literally, within minutes from that decision in 2013, Texas imposes the most stringent forms of voter identification, specifically targeted at African-American voters, young voters, the very old, those who probably are cynically viewed to vote for Democrats and who, in many cases, don't have the means to buy the kind of identification needed by these new laws and are almost overnight disenfranchised from participating in future elections. Over the coming years, Texas then closes more than 750 polling locations across the state of Texas, more than twice the number of the next closest state. Most of those closures occur in the fastest growing black and brown neighborhoods in the state of Texas. So you have lines or queues six hours, eight hours deep now of people trying to cast that ballot because all the other polling locations in their neighborhoods and their communities have closed down. And one can imagine that for every person able to wait six, seven, or eight hours to vote, there are going to be dozens, if not hundreds, who don't have that luxury because they're too busy earning a paycheck or taking care of their kids or ministering to their parents who might be ill or just don't want to face the indignity of standing in line that long in a democracy that is supposed to treat everyone equally. You have a a racial gerrymander of the state where congressional districts are carved up to diminish the voting power of Black voters. And because of the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and that decision in 2013, there's really no legal recourse. And you have Texas descend from something approaching a true democracy to what we have today, where in last year's gubernatorial election, 9 million eligible voters did not cast a ballot. And I I promise you as a Texan, it is not for any lack of love for our democracy. And it's not because anyone is lazy. It's because people have literally been drawn out of that power in this state. So that is the consequence of the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. And for me, Neil, it's a reminder that no victory is ever final. For those of us, and I include myself in this category, who believed naively that after 1965, we were on this perpetual course of progressive expansion of the franchise to more and more people who were eligible to vote, we were rudely awakened in 2013. These successes and victories can always be reversed, and they will be unless we're vigilant. Uh, Another recent example is the 1973 Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion by protecting the right to privacy, to make your own decisions about your own body, your own health care, your own future. Almost no one believed that that landmark decision would ever be overturned. But sure enough, last year, 49 years after Roe versus Wade was decided, it was overturned. And again, it was Texas more than any other state, which rushed to completely remove all protections for reproductive healthcare decisions in our state. And it also happens to be a state that leads much of the developed world in a maternal mortality crisis, three times as deadly 
or Black women. So Texas, which has been at the center of so many of these challenges, is also, I make the case in this book, the center of the fight to restore these protections and these rights, much as Lawrence Nixon and LBJ established the first true multiracial democracy in America. We've got to remember that that Roe versus Wade decision in 1973 was won by three Texas women who prevailed upon an all-male United States Supreme Court. So the point is, not only can we overcome the current challenges before us, we've overcome them before against much longer odds. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Beto O'Rourke and we're talking about his book, We've Got to Try, How the Fight for Voting Rights Makes Everything Else Possible. Beto, you mentioned in the first half that around 9 million people in Texas didn't vote at the last opportunity to do so and how voting queues can be seven or eight hours long. And so, you know, plenty of people just don't have the time to get out and do it. And, you know, impediments are put in their place. But that's people who are registered to vote. Let's talk about how many people in Texas are unregistered. There are millions. You know, we've estimated there are over 4 million eligible but unregistered citizens in the state of Texas who could participate in the 2024 election, for example, where our state holds 40 electoral college votes, which if a Democrat were to win it, and that has not happened since 1976, Jimmy Carter was the last Democrat to win the state of Texas, it would forever change the political landscape 
in America, it would be effectively impossible for a Republican to win the White House if Democrats could win and hold Texas. And it's not the pipe dream that it might seem to some. Barack Obama lost the state by 16 points in 2012. Hillary Clinton lost it by 12. Joe Biden lost it by five and a half points in 2020. And that's without any major investment from the national party or the national campaigns. That's just the inertia of the Texas electorate as it diversifies, is younger, becomes more democratic leaning. Now imagine if we had a level playing field on which to compete. If those millions who are currently unregistered, in part because we have the strictest registration laws in the country. There's no online voter registration in Texas. There is no automatic voter registration, no same-day voter registration. For many people, it means driving down to the county courthouse and making an appointment with the county registrar and filling out paperwork. And understandably, many people don't have the time or the desire to do that, especially when that challenge is compounded by those long queues to be able to vote, the racial gerrymandering, the other obstructions in the way of Texas voters. It's a real challenge. When you add to that, you no longer have the protection of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and what remains of enforcement of the 15th Amendment to our Constitution, which essentially ensures that no one will be discriminated against when it comes to voting. The Attorney General of the United States hasn't done much to enforce that, at least in the state of Texas. We're really on our own. There's no cavalry about to ride to our rescue. But understanding that, being clear-eyed about that, can also be strangely empowering. We now know it is up to us. And so organizations like the one I lead, Powered by People, are out there registering voters by the hundreds of thousands, helping them to navigate these Byzantine laws that are really intended to keep them from ever participating in our politics, and then encouraging them to sign up for volunteer roles, uh, to run for office themselves, or just to make sure that they and their friends actually vote in the next election. And this kind of work is paying off. In 2018, when I ran for Senate against Ted Cruz, we saw the highest level of voter turnout in Texas in generations. Young voter turnout was up more than 500% from the previous midterm election. As dismal as the numbers were that I just recited to you for last year's elections, there were actually an improvement over almost any other previous gubernatorial election, save for 2018. So we're making progress. It's because the people of Texas are doing the work. And we're really in keeping with the spirit of Dr. Lawrence Nixon, this guy who just said, look, I know the odds are against me, but I've got to try. And that guy kept trying election after election, year after year. It took him two decades to get to the integration of elections and really to set the ground for LBJ and that historic decision to move forward with the Voting Rights Act. So we have our work cut out for us, but I think we're up to the challenge. You yourself got trained and certified as a volunteer deputy registrar to enable people, to, for you to help people sign up to vote as well. So what did that involve? There are 254 counties in the state of Texas, a state of 30 million people. And part of the way they make it hard for you to get registered to vote is you often will need the help of a volunteer deputy registrar 
But to become a VDR, you have to be certified in the county where you want to register people to vote. If you go to another adjoining county, you must be certified then in that county. And each of these certification efforts requires typically going to that county courthouse, taking a test, being certified, getting a certificate, getting a booklet of voter registration forms. And then you are street legal to begin knocking on doors and meeting people that you want to bring in to the electorate. But it's really that kind of work that is needed if we're going to overcome this challenge. It's not work that can be done, you know, from our living rooms or on the couch or through social media. It's kind of back to the basics of democracy, of meeting people where they are, you know, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, and making this you know, profoundly powerful human connection that we've, you know, kind of gotten away from in our modern politics, which is just overwhelmed by new technologies and the billions of dollars that are poured into this. And so not only is it essential to bringing people into the fold, what I have found is it's incredibly fulfilling and restorative for the people doing the work. You know, when you're on that precipice of despair, given everything that's going on, including these challenges to democracy that we're talking about today, you know, one can be tempted, understandably, to give in or to give up or just to accept this as our permanent future and fate. But when you're out there meeting people and one by one bringing them on to the roles, each of those conversations is like a, a mini victory. And though you're tired at the end of the day because you've been out there walking and, and meeting people and there's that uncertainty of how someone's going to react when a total stranger's at their door trying to bring them into this political process, you also find yourself so fulfilled and for me at least so happy. And so different than how I would feel if I were just doom scrolling through Twitter or watching the news or just worrying about how much worse things could get. Action is the antidote to despair. And so in our effort, powered by people registering voters, this is an opportunity to take that kind of action that not only feels good, but is essential to ultimately winning political power Political power is essential to changing the laws so that we can expand the electorate, make it easier to register, make it easier to vote, and ensure that the laws and the government that we have are a true reflection and expression of the people that they purport to serve and represent. You know, it's, it's the kind of laborious, tedious, but again, deeply fulfilling work that we saw in the civil rights and voting rights movements. These people who ran citizenship schools like Septima Clark did in the Deep South to navigate these arcane registration processes, or those who marched with John Lewis across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, an event that in March 1965 absolutely galvanized the country and gave President Johnson the political power he was looking for to convene Congress and to convince a nearly all-white political body to extend political power to a black minority within the country. It didn't happen just because Johnson was enlightened or wanted to do the right thing. He was really pushed to do that by the public pressure of these civil and voting rights volunteers throughout the country. I think that we, all of us who are working on this across the United States right now, and especially those who are under attack in places like Texas, are marching forward in that same spirit. And I think we're going to get to that same kind of victory if we stay the course and we keep trying. Just one more thing then. So you grew up in El Paso and you've been involved with grassroots local politics 
there for years and years and you mentioned in the first half something of what the city was like when dr lawrence nixon moved there how it was a you know much more freer place what are the consequences of el paso being a border town now what's it like now what with all of the sort of the tensions around immigration and border and the war and all of that sort of nonsense that have uh, permeated over the last few years El Paso is just an extraordinarily beautiful place. It's conjoined with Ciudad Juarez, forming the largest binational metroplex anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, if not the world. It's in the Chihuahuan Desert. It's in the Rocky Mountains. It's absolutely gorgeous. In fact, we were talking earlier, my, my favorite band of all time is The Clash. Paul Simonon, the bass player, after The Clash breakup, briefly moves to El Paso, Texas, which if I needed any proof that I'm in the right place, that is it. In 1910, more than a century ago, it is the launching pad for the Mexican Revolution. It is the home to writers and artists and entrepreneurs and adventurers. It is the most essential city in America at the time. You know, 100 years later, it has been so demeaned and vilified by those who try to stoke anxiety and fear about immigrants and brown-skinned people coming to this country that even though we are one of, if not the safest big cities in the United States of America, we become the projection of every right-wing extremist fever dream of the great replacement of white political power in America. And you have a major militarization of the border. You have you know, a massive policy of cruelty against those who are coming to make a better life in this country. And the consequence of that ultimately is in 2019, someone who is inspired by this hateful rhetoric about brown-skinned people invading America drove 600 miles from his home in North Texas to El Paso, armed with a, a weapon of war, an AK-47, walked into a Walmart grocery store on the Saturday before the school year would start. So the, the store is full of parents and grandparents with their kids and grandkids getting backpacks and notebooks and school supplies. And this guy who told authorities that he had come to El Paso to repel the Hispanic invasion of America opens fire, slaughtering 23 people. 23 people killed in that day, really in just a matter of minutes, in a city that routinely has under 20 murders over the entire year. You know, a community of 1 million people with fewer than 20 murders a year. This guy, inspired by that hateful rhetoric, demonstrates to us the consequences of our failure to meet this white nationalism, our terrible record on gun laws and gun safety in the United States of America, and really this attack on democracy and the right to vote. This was an act of political terror or terrorism, and it must be met with the resolve and the urgency that it demands. And again, that's part of what we are trying to do right now here in El Paso and across the state of Texas. So I've been talking to Beto O'Rourke. We've been talking about his book, We've Got to Try, How the Fight for Voting Rights Makes Everything Else Possible, which is out now from Flatiron Books. Beto, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you, Neil. I'm grateful. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.